you know, big thing that's happened is the undeniable reality of, of the climate impact, and it gives us a foretaste of, of what we're up against, uh, because for a while, at least, it's not going to get better. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. This week, world leaders are gathered in Glasgow, Scotland, to discuss what to do about the climate crisis. Gus Speth knows what brought us to the edge of this climate emergency. President Carter and all the presidents who followed him knew too. The U.S. government knew that climate change was an impending disaster. They knew that burning fossil fuels could drive the world into crisis. And yet for the last half century, American leaders put their foot on the accelerator of fossil fuel consumption and pushed down hard. Gus Speth is now telling the story of how and why this happened. Speth, who lives in Stratford, Vermont, is a luminary in the environmental movement. He served as chair of the U.S. Council on Environmental Quality during the Carter administration. He went on to lead the U.N. Development Program and served as dean of the Yale School of Environment. He also co-founded the World Resources Institute and the Natural Resources Defense Council. His new book is They Knew, the U.S. Federal Government's 50-Year Role in Causing the Climate Crisis. I talked to him about what he knew and when. Gus Speth, welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. Well, it's good to be with you again, David. I want to start with where the news is this week, and that is COP26, the Global Climate Conference, uh, the Conference of Parties. Uh, Secretary General Antonio Guterres addressed the conference on Monday by saying, quote, Enough of brutalizing biodiversity, enough of killing ourselves with carbon, enough of treating nature like a toilet, enough of burning and drilling and mining our way deeper. We are digging our own graves. What is your response when you hear this? Well, I'm glad that he's saying it. Uh, and I'm glad that the world is, uh, uh, you know, uh, called in during these cops, uh, uh, which have been going on since the early 1990s, I think, uh, that to to face up to to the realities out there, and and the NGOs and and now the Secretary General are you know basically bringing that that reality uh, into focus for us. Um, on the other hand, um, I must say uh, it's a bit of an old song uh, too, because. Uh, there they have been stark warnings uh, about the climate issue uh, going back to, uh, well, really, they started doing the LBJ years uh, and really uh, got very prominent in, inside the government, at least, uh, during the Carter administration. Uh, so we've been, and the warnings have been consistent. This is not something where the science has flipped and flopped and made wrong-headed predictions and was off base. The science has been right on the whole time. And the predictions that were made way back then are coming true today. Uh, so when I hear that kind of statement, it's, there's a bit of deja vu. Um, but there's also, uh, I'm glad to hear it. It's better than ignoring the issue for another round. It has been striking hearing world leaders at this COP 
you know, this phrase that the UN Secretary General uses, we are digging our own graves, they seem to have sort of cast caution aside and are trying to shake people from their slumber. Um, what is it that they're seeing now that perhaps they didn't see with the kind of urgency that was needed before? Well, I think, I mean, first, they've been saying the same, off, pretty much the same thing for quite a while. So there's a bit of frustration and there's a realization that the uh, typical scientific presentations uh, have not been making much of a dent. I would add that the typical um, comfortable advocacy of from people like me have not been, it has not been making much of a dent either. Uh, so I think the, um, you know, uh, it, it's a, there's a realization also that things have gotten already out of hand. Um, you know, it's not just that, um, that, that uh, the scientists are frustrated and letting their hair down to finally try to make an impact. Uh, it's also that the climate issue is, uh, is biting us in the rear. Uh, and and causing devastating uh, harm to people and to environments all over the world already, and, and so I think what you know a big thing that's happened uh, is uh, is the reality of, of of the climate, undeniable reality of of the climate impact, and 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 it gives us a foretaste of, of what we're up against uh, because for a while at least it's not going to get better. Well, let's talk about your book, uh, They Knew. Why did you write this book? Well, it, it started as an um, uh, a input into the well-known children's climate lawsuit. Uh, this case, called the Juliana case, uh, was brought by a wonderful advocacy for children uh, called Our Children's Trust, a public interest law firm in Oregon. And representing these 21 kids six years ago, they brought a lawsuit uh, claiming a constitutional right to have their climate protected and a constitutional right that the government, the federal government, had to had to protect. Uh, and uh, so I started out with a, a project for them, uh, which was to try to analyze uh, exactly what the federal government knew, when it knew it, what it did, uh, and what it didn't do. Uh, for the, that period, uh, started out for just the Carter administration, but it evolved into a much bigger project uh, covering all the administrations from Carter through Trump, uh, and you know, and and so that was the the origin. Uh, we we decided after that work was done that it would be good to get it published uh, because it contained so much useful information. I think that's the strength of the book is its usefulness uh, to people who want to understand how we got here and, and uh, what the federal government's role was. Well, let's talk about what they knew and what you knew. Um, you were a top official in the Carter administration. When you entered the Carter administration, when it began in 1976, what did you and President Carter know about climate, climate change and its relation to burning fossil fuels? Well, uh, it's a uh, a moving target in a way because we were learning. Uh, certainly, I was learning. Uh, but the scientists in the Carter administration, led by Frank Press, the, sci the president's science advisor at that time, uh, Frank was the Carter science advisor for the four years of his administration. 
And uh, early in the Carter years, in early uh, 1977, Frank Press wrote uh, a memo to President Carter outlining the whole climate issue and saying this was not something that should be ignored. It had to be taken into account. He went on to say it wasn't urgent right now, uh, but it was something that was going to affect uh, our energy policy, and we needed to start taking that into account. And I was uh, had just joined the administration at that time, uh, and of course uh, had access, uh, knew about this memo and the issue. Um, my job was to be President Carter's science advisor. Uh, so eventually I was able to uh, frame the issue in a way that I could take it uh, to him uh, and to others in the administration. Uh, and that happened uh, a little later in 1979. When So how seriously did people take this memo about climate change? Did it did it just seem like something that was off in the, you know, almost sci-fi future? Or did they kind of sense that this was something imminent that had to be addressed now? And if so, what'd they do? Well, in 1980, Carter gave up uh, what, for those of us in the environmental community, was a big, well-known speech called the Second Environmental Decade Speech. We'd been through the 70s, and he was facing the 80s. And he, in that speech, um, uh, for which I had had an opportunity to brief him, of, uh, and uh, there weren't many of those opportunities, but I was glad to have that one. Uh, and he uh, he outlined a series of challenges that had to be met in the coming decade and faced in the coming decade. And the climate change issue was 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 very much on that list. And and from talking to him, I know that he understood the issue. And he'd uh, there had been memos uh, floating around in the administration. Uh, raising this issue, including some from our Council on Environmental Quality, uh, and and so I think at the you know the very senior level uh, over at the Department of Energy, which was just uh, cranking itself up, uh, just been created, and in other places in the administration, people were were aware of the issue, saw it as something that needed to be addressed. Uh, did not, I wouldn't, I never claim we had uh, th at that point that the Carter administration had a great sense of urgency about it or that it was the top environmental issue of the day. It just wasn't at that point. But Carter did a number of things uh, that were very important. I mean, he recognized the issue. He said that he would be taking it up in his second term. Uh, and he, uh, in the meanwhile, had put together uh, a strong uh, energy conservation program, energy efficiency program for the country, and had put together a, uh, a strong commitment to renewable energy in which he had set a goal for the country of 20% uh, renewables uh, by the, the year 2000, uh, 20 years down the road from his administration. So Carter had tried to set us on the right track. He'd also done some other things to promote fossil fuels. Uh, and was very much kind of an all of the above person when it came to energy, except oil imports, which those of us who remember that era know that that was the target of a lot of early energy policy was to reduce our imports of, uh, of, of, of oil from OPEC and others. You note in this book that uh, putting a foot on the accelerator of fossil fuel consumption has been a bipartisan affair. And in fact, under Carter, uh, you note that coal use expanded dramatically both during and after his administration. So talk about here's a guy who um, is talking the talk, is 
smart enough to know that there's a real problem here, and yet he too is expanding fossil fuel consumption on his watch. Why did that happen? Well, I think that that's a pattern that continues right on up to this very moment when we see uh, uh, President uh, Biden, who uh, has certainly put in place the strongest goals for, for greenhouse gas reductions of any president by far, and uh, is prepared to take uh, major action if we could get the darn Senate to agree with him as on some first steps. Uh, but um, and and but what is he also doing? He's uh, you know asking um, the OPEC to free up the oil uh, pipeline, and uh, they're very worried about the price of gasoline going up and affecting their political prospects and 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 the prices of other things. Um, and so what we have is, uh, you know, we, we are a country that is 90, starting with Carter, 90% dependent on fossil fuels. Uh, moving on up to Trump, we were, you know, had declined 80% dependent, but still overwhelmingly a country that ran and still runs on fossil fuels. And of course, when the CEOs of the giant oil companies testified the other day before Congress, they didn't let us forget that. Uh, they talked a great deal about how dependent and necessary their products are. And, and in that context, you know, you have to have, um, you have to have a longer term vision about what, you know, what is needed and you have to pursue it over a long period of time. Uh, you know, the oil companies made it seem like we were just trying to go cold Turkey on, uh, on no fossil fuels. And, and uh, but that of course is not what has ever been, uh, proposed. And so I think the, 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 the reality is that the uh, fossil fuel dependence that we have uh, is, a, is also something that tends to cement us in the particular moment to, to the status quo. It's a box that we can get out of, but we have to plan our way out of it and start implementing the right policies and pursue them diligently over time. And now those policies have become urgent. Uh, they could have been smooth, uh, easy to implement if we'd started in 1980. But of course, Reagan undid almost everything that Carter tried to do. You mentioned about the oil industry. Um, so as somebody who was in the room with the president, with the leaders, um, you know, this idea of the oil industry or the fossil fuel industry with its hand on the throat of the political um you know, center of the country. What does that feel like? How does that actually express itself when you say the oil industry has always been very good at letting us know what the price of gas is? Um, when you were in government, um, how did that express itself? Well, the, uh, you know, we were uh, determined to uh, face up to the oil import issue, and that was the, the dominant issue. But I think the grip that the oil industry has on us and, and on the Congress, uh, going back to, uh, to Carter's first, you know, Carter was really the first president who tried to put energy policy in place um, and did a lot. But, um, you know, the thing that... Um, that that uh, that scares a lot of politicians and and also solidifies the the status quo uh is is the tremendous political clout of of the fossil fuel industry 
and the uh, and the money that they have poured in uh, from into into politics, into public opinion, uh, and um, and into uh, and 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 I think it's it's uh, it's been very difficult because they certainly have scared a lot of people when when there's a threat to some activity uh, a pipeline uh, they certainly know how to push the buttons at the state level uh, to scare people that this is going to cost jobs and uh, we can build up a lot of jobs if we build this pipeline or build this refinery or begin to export some oil or process uh, fra- uh, tar sands uh, fuels from Alberta. You know, all of these things the oil industry is very skilled at manipulating uh, and pouring money into, including a disinformation campaign, uh, which for uh, which has done a totally nefarious and 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 misguided and misleading thing, which is to create this sense that the boss, you know, the greenhouse gases is a hoax, uh, or at least it's very doubtful in its science and. And if there's a hoax, it's really this this uh, climate denial, uh, because as I mentioned earlier, that the consistency of the science over this period of over 50 years has been quite remarkable, and its ability to predict what might happen has been quite remarkable. Uh, so there hadn't been any flip-flops uh, and, and doubts about uh, the, the core of the science issue during this period, and the oil industry has succeeded. Now, not just in creating a marginal sort of sideshow over here of climate denial and doubt, but in swaying a whole party uh, in our country to to take that position. And uh, you you know, it's hard to find a Republican now who is willing to uh, champion action on the climate issue. And and a lot of it has to do with this uh, the uh, fact that the public uh, has been persuaded a big segment of it that the whole thing has been exaggerated, that it's uh, natural, that it's, uh, or some other uh, fake science. Has that always been the case, that the Republican Party has been in the climate denial camp? You you worked with Republicans over your half century plus in public life, um, and there was a time when environmentalism and even climate, you know, an interest in climate change was spoken about by Republican leaders. What changed? Well, absolutely. I think uh, it, that change was uh, part and parcel of uh, of a number of other things. But if we, uh, you know, if, if if you go back to the early seventies when I started in the environmental world, um, you know, the Republicans and the Democrats weren't that far apart. And we had some real climate champions back in those days who were Republicans and some real environmental, general environmental champions that were Republicans. Uh, John Sherman, the senator from Kentucky, uh, and then Howard Baker from Tennessee. They worked very closely with Ed Muskie to get the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act uh, up and running. And those were huge breakthrough laws that we're still dependent upon today. Um, the, um, so it didn't start that way, but what has happened, if you look at a chart, say, of the League of Conservation Voters voting patterns for the two parties, uh, starting in the 70s, e- even, it began to diverge. And there's been this rather steady uh, doubt, you know, movement away from environment and climate on the part of the Republicans and a move towards those issues 
in, in the Democrats to the point that it's very hard today to find a Democrat with a bad voting record on environment and very hard to find a Republican with a good voting record. And, and this is a great tragedy uh, for our country and for our ability to, uh, to get things done. Um, and well, of the course, issue, let me just mention one other one other thing there, David. Uh, this growth, this divergence, and this capturing of the Republican Party by doubt and denial on climate, and also just general hostility to environment. This movement towards those towards those uh, positions and on the Republicans um, grew grew throughout this period, and um, and it was really uh, brought to a, graphically to into focus when Grover Norquist, who was the organizer of the of the Republican forces, uh, uh, you know, the outside forces for this position, uh, said, well, our goal is to shrink government down to the point that it's so small we can drown it in the bathtub. And then around that same time, Reagan was making his famous statement uh, that, you know, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem, and and that ideology uh, is has swept uh, uh, one of our major parties, and 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 has gotten more and more uh, virulent and and ridiculous uh, in the decades uh, since those statements were were made, uh, and so we have a we have a hell of a problem now, which we're now facing every day in the Congress. Well. And of course, the the expression of that anti-science uh, mentality has been brought into its sharpest relief during the pandemic, when you have a Republican Party and many governors who are essentially taking the side of the coronavirus in the fight against the pandemic and, you know, trying to stop any mask mandates or vaccination mandates that would slow down the progress of the virus. And of course, all this talk of hoax that got a good running start in the climate change movement has blossomed in the pandemic era into where people in large parts of the country don't believe that there is a pandemic and don't believe that the vaccine will do anything to help it. Um, You've had a front row seat to the growth of this movement. Does this surprise you where we are right now in the pandemic? Well, I'm certainly, uh, uh, yes. It, it, even today, uh, we've had this anti-science movement, which is, you know, uh, based um, a, a large part on, on ignorance. I mean, you have half the country, uh, the last time I looked at the data, about half the country doubting that evolution was a reality. Now, you just can't go there uh if you're you know if you really uh have any faith at all in in science um and so this has been around uh we have a we have done a very bad job with science education in the country but the whole thing now has been swept up into a political ideology uh so that the anti-science positions and the anti-government positions and the anti uh, regulation positions and uh, it's all now part of a, a ball of wax that uh, uh, is has captured a, a major political party. You see some fraying of that around the edges and some common sense coming into play here and there, but uh, 
by and large, it's a it's a it's a tremendous uh, tragedy, and the climate issue is is caught up in it. Uh, and you know, you'd like to think that one day that the logjam is going to break, that there'll be some leading Republicans who will say, you know, that they know that they, we've got to act very swiftly and very powerfully on climate. The problem with that for them is that that, in effect, says that we need the federal government in the worst kind of way. And we not only need the federal government in some policy, in some, you know, leadership uh, words, but in action. And this means that the federal government is going to have to lead a process of, of major change in the economy. And as they would put it, intervention uh, in, in our economy. And that's what we need. We need it desperately. Uh, but it really uh, pushes against this, uh, this now uh, uh, well-ensconced uh, ideological uh, bias that, uh, uh, as I say, has, has largely captured a major political party. Your book is about the uh, federal government's 50-year role in causing the climate crisis. In that time period, there have been, we've had Reagan, we've had Bush 1, Bush 2, Clinton, Obama, Trump, and now Biden. Uh, these are all, uh, and of course it begins with Carter, who you worked for. These are all very different ideologically uh, uh, presidents. Does the needle change much with each of these, or is it just kind of veer back and forth? Or is when it comes to climate, are they all pretty consistently pro-fossil fuel? Well, they were all that. Uh, every administration, and this is one of the major conclusions, if you will, of the book, is that uh, you know, I, I, the, the facts uh, demonstrate that every administration has done pretty much everything it could do to promote fossil fuel use in the country. Uh, the question is really whether they did other things and began to lay the groundwork for effective climate policy. And in that area, there, there is a pattern in the book, uh, which I think you only really see if you think about that whole 50-year sweep. Uh, we've had three administrations that took the issue with a, a fair amount of seriousness and, uh, and started the process of trying to deal with it. Uh, you know, Carter, Clinton, and Obama. And, uh, and they were each uh, followed by a flamethrower administration that sought pretty much to undo whatever the previous administration had done on climate and indeed a host of other issues. So that, that kind of reached its apex in the Obama-Trump uh, period, uh, which Obama put together that what were at that time the leading initiatives, uh, a power plant initiative and a, uh, a vehicle initiative to reduce uh, greenhouse gases from both. And, um, and you know, Trump comes in and, and does them both in. Um, and, uh, and, and indeed tries to undo a host of things, uh, systematically undo uh, so many of the things that uh, Obama had tried to do. So that pattern has persisted now over this uh, whole period. Uh, you know, if you want to break, make the partisan point, you point out that the three who tried to do something uh, were Democrats, but I don't think any of them took on the fossil fuel industry. And that's what is unique in a way about uh, the Biden administration and where we are today, because Biden has set a national policy of of going to, um, you know, zero net emissions from all the greenhouse gases from all the sectors in the economy. 
and get, you know, by 2050. And a, and a very strong uh, power plant goal uh, for 2030. And so these are, uh, this is unprecedented in the, in the history of this period because it says we're going to get out of, basically we're going to get out of the fossil fuel business and do so within a few decades. Uh, that may turn out to be too lax a goal. I think it will be, but it's a darn good start uh, from, from where we were. And, uh, and, and so I think, you know, getting, getting Biden's early actions off to a, a good start couldn't be more important. And, and that's what we're faced with in the Congress right now. Of course, that it remains to be seen if he can surmount uh, fossil fuels man in the Senate, uh, uh, Senator Joe Manchin, who is the uh, largest recipient of fossil fuel money of any legislator. And he runs a uh, coal brokerage company. And this is who now holds the fate of Biden's clean energy agenda in his hands. Um, how do we make climate progress in this situation where the gatekeepers, this is truly the foxes uh, gatekeeping the hen house? Well, I think there, there are two, two steps. I mean, one is this immediate situation with uh, Senator Manchin. Uh, you know, I think at some point the Democrats are going to have to say that we're going to call his bluff. I mean, he seems to be able to dream up a problem uh, with the Biden proposals and his build back better uh, plan at every turn, even after we seem to have an agreement from him. So at some point, I think the Democrats are going to have to call his bluff, go forward with this thing, and that may happen as early uh as the week that we're in. Uh, looking down the road a bit, I think there's several new directions that we need to, uh, to explore. Uh, one is not so new, but it involves a tremendous escalation of public uh, outcry, public action, uh, demonstrations, protests, uh, and, um, and, and, and we, on, a, on a scale that we haven't seen. We, we've had one-off uh, climate meetings and one-off uh climate marches the huge one in in new york for example but it hasn't been the kind of sustained and demanding activism that that we need and and the broad-based uh activism that we need now uh and we really uh we're late with it but uh, it's good to see groups like extinction rebellion and sunrise movement and others out there uh including a hunger strike in front of the white house uh right now and these are these are these are things that we we need to do and we need to do urgently the, this massive civic mobilization uh, a second thing related to that is that the environmental community and the climate community have been pretty terrible about politics and getting into political action and i think we really need to be um uh getting into electoral politics in a much bigger way than we ever have uh, we need to be putting a lot more of the funds that we have that we can mobilize, uh, you know, in a way, if you want to take them out of the 501c3 and put them into the political action arms of these organizations. Uh, because we and, and get a lot more involved into politics, running candidates, winning these elections, writing letters, hitting the doors, uh, all the things that, that uh, we need to do, and a lot of which we 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 did uh in the last election 
I, I uh, want to talk about your own evolution as uh, a political person going from the centers of power in the White House to forming very impactful uh, nonprofit and organizations um, to ending up in the D.C. jail for three days for civil disobedience that you did a few years back while protesting the Keystone XL pipeline. What radicalized you to want to take your convictions to the street and get arrested for them? Well, the facts, <laughs> the unfolding reality, the failure of everything that I'd done earlier, uh, and, uh, and, and simple, uh, and then this, and of course the, the horror of, of the unfolding climate, uh, specter and, and what that holds for us. And that was involved in that particular protest because we still are trying to be sure we don't really exploit, uh, fully the uh, Canadian tar sands. Uh, and I think, um, you know, this is a, uh, it wasn't, I don't take any great pride. If anything, I feel, um, you know, kind of uh, like I was a Johnny come lately to, to what, what is needed. Uh, and, uh, but I hope others will, will join that, that sense of outrage and action. And I hope the book, which, uh, has got to be one of the saddest stories ever told, uh, and uh, a great, you know, historical dereliction of duty. Uh, I hope that the book will make people angry, uh, will will inform people enough to know that something new has got to be done, that we can't just keep doing the same things over and over again and expecting a different result. Uh, you know, we have, we have run a great experiment for 50 years at comfortable advocacy and good science was going to turn the day, and they haven't. Uh, so this is really a matter of uh, popular mobilization at this point and, and, and people uh, uh, doing on a much bigger scale uh, what I did. And uh, maybe they end up in jail, maybe they don't, but um, it, was, um, it was necessary. And I think the, you know, the book is necessary because it, uh, it, it, it provides people with the information to understand how we got here. And if we understand how we got here, we maybe can do something better. In, in in the future. I would add one thing about doing something better. The, the gist of the book, in a way, or the, the f original purpose of the book, uh, was to support litigation. And, um, and, the, uh, uh, and the litigation is seeking to get a, uh, a constitutional uh, remedy. Uh, and if it could succeed in moving in those directions so that we bring the courts actively into this picture as they have become actively engaged in, in Europe, for example, uh, in this country, that'll be an additional help. And one particular area it will help in is if there could be declared a constitutional right in this area, then that will transcend any particular administration. And you're, we could, you're you're referring to the Juliana lawsuit, which is the genesis of your book. And this is 21 young people suing the government um, over their, you know, demanding a right to a future that is not have a destroyed climate. What is the status of that lawsuit? Well, the lawsuit is um, the uh, the plaintiffs just announced that the, their effort to uh, reach a settlement uh, with the government on the case, 
uh, hasn't had not gone anywhere. And uh, so therefore, uh, you know, they say they are ready uh, to uh, to to talk uh, about settlement with the with the Biden administration. But the Biden administration has not shown any interest in talking to them. And so that avenue does not seem to have worked. And so we're back uh, with the possibility of reopening the case at the district court. And the uh, plaintiffs have made some filings there. And, uh, and, and I think they hope uh, that the judge will act positively on, on their filings and that the case can uh, be, uh, go forward uh, in court. I, you know, it's a mystery to me why the Biden administration is not behaving more positively about this litigation. Uh, and um, they're behaving just the same as the Trump administration did. And uh, for example, and we, um, you know, it, 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 you would think that I have this feeling that there are a number of issues uh, or places, so to speak, where uh, the new uh, approach of, of the uh, of the Justice Department hasn't hadn't caught up with the old approach, and and that some of there's some, you know, running on uh, fumes uh, on the part of the old approach. Uh, Maybe the Biden administration will change and, and, and come to terms with this with this lawsuit. But uh, right now they are behaving just like the, the Trump people did. You have said, uh, and I quote, I used to think the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse and climate change. I thought that with 30 years of good science, we could address those problems. But I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. To deal with those, we need a spiritual and cultural transformation, and we scientists don't know how to do that. Can you say a little more about that? Well, one thing I'd say about it is that the person who quoted me got it a little wrong. Uh, <laughs> I would never claim I was a scientist. <laughs> never have, never will, never was. Uh, but uh, apart from that, uh, he got it right. Uh, I'd made that statement. And I've written that statement now in a couple of places. Um, and um, But um, I think the, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we, there's a uh, the underlying, uh, are the, 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 the poor response to a lot of environmental issues and to a lot of social issues too uh, is a uh, you know sort of a, a wrong-headed uh, uh, set of values that need to be changed that are outmoded and inappropriate for today's challenges. You know we're severely anthropocentric and contemporocentric and materialistic and and we need to rethink, uh, you know, what it's all about and what the economy is all about and what we really want to do with ourselves other than grow and spend money and consume. Uh, and uh, there's some great new books on those those themes. But I, one thing I, I point out is that, um, you know, for years, the discourse has been governed uh, on these issues, has been governed by uh lawyers and economists uh and scientists um and 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 it you know it's obviously not nearly enough we need to bring in the preachers and the prophets and the poets uh 
uh, and the philosophers uh, and the psychologists, uh, even the psychiatrists, and uh, and 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 bring in these new areas uh, to to help us find our way uh, forward. Because uh, you know, simple, and I think you know that's another conclusion for me of the book. Uh, you uh, you know, if the book stands for one thing, uh, it's system failure. It's the failure of a system over 50 years to deal with the most pressing issue of all. And uh, so the slogan at the climate marches that we've all seen, uh, you know, uh, bring on system change, not climate change, is really what, is to me, the book uh, stands for that. So how do we while we're doing these other things, these reformist steps, how do we go beyond reform and begin to, to change the political economy that we live and, and work in? And to do that, we need uh, a fundamental rethinking of, the, of our habits of thought, our, uh, uh, our values uh, that dominate in our, in our culture uh, today. And so that's, that's what I was getting at. What is system change look like? Has capitalism run its course as uh, as something that, you know, is capitalism compatible with a climate safe future? Well, certainly the capitalism that we've seen for decades now is not. Uh, this capital, that capitalism um, puts a, a priority, gives the top priority to, to growth, to economic growth. Uh, as measured by GDP, which measures a lot of terrible, awful things, as well as some good things. Uh, it gives top priority to the, the profit and the profitability and the, uh, the strength of uh, corporations and, and their uh, freedom across a huge swath to do whatever they darn well want. Uh, it gives uh, priority to consumerism uh, and uh, I would say a runaway consumerism, uh, and uh, it it cares very little about uh, the, the social decay in the economy in the society. Uh, you know, uh, with the, the huge uh, desperation and de deprivation, and the huge uh, parts of a, of the popular pub public, a uh, half the people living paycheck to paycheck, uh, unemployment. Uh, now, unemployment's recovering, but. Um, you know, wages are still not growing over a period of many decades, and uh, and poverty is is still at a, a very high level, almost as high as it's been, uh, certainly in numbers. And you know, so we we have this uh, decaying uh, society uh, in 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 the educational systems and uh, in in our care of people and uh, in our health care, as we've seen most recently. Uh, and uh, and and this this is uh, these are artifacts of today's capitalism. It just doesn't care about those those things. It cares about other things. Uh, that list that I was uh, going down, and so you know, to me, system change means changing those priorities, uh, changing the the very goals, uh, the the raison d'etre of of the uh, of our economic and, and social life. You know, we are caring people or we are just a growth people. You mentioned uh, this is a time that calls for poets, among other people, and uh, that includes you. 
you are a poet. You have a new book of poems that came out uh, last summer called What Will Last. Um, how long have you been writing poetry? Yeah. Well, let me. Uh, this What Will Last is actually the, the new book that's coming out uh, this year. Uh, but um, there's the third of, of these poetry books that, that I've written. Um, and I, you know, I wouldn't brag about my poems. Uh, I think uh, they uh, they try to teach. They they try to amuse, <laughs> and uh, and and I think they uh, they they're a pleasure for me uh, to to write and to share, and that's why I do it. Um, but well, I, I wonder if I you would uh, if you have a favorite poem that you would share from what will last. Yeah, well. Uh, I I have one here, uh, believe it or not, um, and um, I will. Um, it has to do with what we've been talking about, and uh, and I hope uh, it it's actually what it is called in the business of villanelle, villanelle, the type of poem. Um, you want me to read it, huh? I would love you to read it. And what is it called? It's called, It's Time for America Again. Um, here we go. I think I see America again. Every time she seems so lost, America finds a touch of sane. Social injustice is a dark stain. But in countless civil protests, I think I see America again. Democracy is hard to sustain. Before democracy is lost, America finds a bit of sane. Polluters have had free reign. Now there may be climate action. I think I see America again. Migrants' treatments not humane. Decency demands a better tack. Will America find a touch of sane? Time now for a bold campaign, a struggle for all the children. It's time for America again. Thanks. <laughs> what inspired that poem? Oh, uh, well, just uh, I think it was um, uh, it was written uh, uh, shortly after the uh, last uh, presidential election. <laughs> and I was feeling pretty upbeat at the time. <laughs> I've been beaten down some since then, as we all have. But uh, uh, so it has this um, this optimistic, uh, hopeful flavor to it. Uh, I think I see America again. You are one of the elders of the environmental movement, uh, a trailblazer on so many fronts. When you speak to young people now, uh, you've mentioned that your latest book, They Knew, is a sad story. What's your message for young people who are looking ahead to their future and wondering what it holds for them? Well, on the, the climate issue, I think young people really have got the message. I mean, they've got it in a way that the older generation and the middle generation uh, don't have. And, and so much of the activism lately has been driven by young people. And that's true going on right now today uh, in, uh, in, in Glasgow. Uh, so, you know, my message is right on. I, I wish I were young, <laughs> could be there, uh, could be there with you. And uh, good for our uh, 
our homegrown hero, uh, Bill McKibben, uh, for realizing that the young people have to be joined uh, in, in a major way by uh, people over 60. Uh, I think he turned 60 or something like that. And so that's his, uh, his cutoff point. Uh, but those of us who, uh, I told him he, maybe he needs one for people over 82. But uh, <laughs> in any case, uh, he's starting um, uh, the, this effort uh, to uh, Act 3 to, uh, to get the older folks uh, engaged as the young people are uh, in this issue. But I think, um, I don't, I don't think young people, uh, certainly uh, huge numbers of them now get the point that their future is very much, uh, determined, uh, and their opportunities are very much uh, determined or circumscribed as the case may be, um, you know, by what happens on the climate issue. I mean, this issue, uh, has long been predicted to become the central factor in our politics. Uh, and you can see that growing uh, in that direction every day. But they, there could come a time when the options available to young people uh, in this world are severely diminished. And with that is a diminution of, of freedom. Uh, I mean, it, it one definition of, of freedom is uh, the expansion of, of real opportunity and the capacity to seize those opportunities. And in a world that's, um, in fact, uh, dominated by uh, closing down of opportunities due to uh, extraordinary uh, effects of, of climate change, including political effects, well, that freedom is diminished. And um, and so, you know, I think they, they're, they're right to fight and, uh, and, and right to be in there. And I really uh, think when the break for me for that was when uh, the Sunrise Movement appeared in Nancy Pelosi's office and just stayed there. And I, I think that was a breakthrough moment for activism, and and uh, so and of course the indigenous populations of, of our country and, and Canada have stood up to the fossil fuel developments, uh, and that's admirable. We've seen uh, Black Americans get into this climate fight uh, in a major way now, uh, you know, led notably by Reverend Barber, and. Uh, and what he's doing uh, with the Poor People's Campaign and and the Movement for Black Lives and other things have have uh, seen the, the links between social justice and environmental justice and our climate uh, future uh, and very clearly. And this is all good. These are very hopeful signs. And, and meanwhile, we have the climate crisis driving more and more people into victims, uh, becoming victims and, and therefore feeling uh, feeling the, the oppressed by by what's what this issue is already doing so this is this is and if we can get the courts involved uh as well into in this fight where they have not been uh you know uh, this is uh we we these are these are all hopeful and, and and good signs and so there's there's plenty to fight for well gus speth i want to thank you for joining us on the vermont conversation well thank you david i uh I appreciate this opportunity and uh, what should I say, especially to read my poem. Good. I'm glad to give you that opportunity. All right. Take care. Take care. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.